I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Nicole Marie, the pedagogista at Evergreen Community School, a progressive social constructivist preschool in Santa Monica that's been educating children teachers and conducting teacher research for over 40 years. She was a founding member and mentor teacher for Pilla Global, which has been a hub for discourse in early childhood and currently builds and supports educational spaces for young children displaced by poverty worldwide. An educator and writer, she was the lead writer for Patagonia's award-nominated book, Family Business, Innovative On-Site Child Care, since 1983, and her work training and consulting with schools has taken her into educational spaces all over the country and world. In 2022, Nicole and Evergreen Community School will be publishing The Pencil Is Me, a collection of poetry by young children, which is a selection of poems collected from over a decade's poetry written by two to five-year-olds. So welcome to the show, Nicole. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here. So Nicole, just to kick it off, what is a pedagogista for those who don't know the term? Yeah, that's a great question. Almost nobody knows the term, so I'm glad you asked. Um, It basically means that pedagogy is the art and practice of teaching. So my role at the school is overseeing all of the teaching practices. Um, Our school has kind of what's called emergent curriculum. So it's being developed with the children and the teachers in real time. And so I help uh, teachers keep track of that. Um, I look for connections between different classrooms, what's going on, and um, just kind of oversee all of the teaching practices in the school. And Nicole, why is understanding children so important? And, you know, how have we as a society misunderstood them? This is a great question. And one I could probably talk to for a very long time. So let me see what the first (laughs) thing is that wants to come up on that. I'd say the first thing I'd say is that um, 
what kind of gets forgotten sometimes about children in childhood is that it's this really unique period in the human experience um, that has all these gifts and offerings to the culture that uh, kind of can get belittled or can get skipped over. So like often, this is a really common thing. You hear the rhetoric of, oh, the children are our future. We need to prepare them for the future. They're going to take on, you know, all of the institutions we give them and, and all of that, which is all very true about who children are that is going to happen in the future. But what that misses is that we actually have human beings and citizens that are actively engaging in our communities and in our world right now. And they are people who have this unique perspective that we lose as we get, get older, that we'll never have again. They have unique access to joy, unique access to imagination, to wonder, to awe. Um, and so when we, uh, which is very common, conceptualize their whole place as something for the future, then we miss what they really are offering us right now and what they need right now and what they bring to the culture right now. Mm, yeah, I find that uh, to be so fascinating, the belittling of children and their imagination. And um, and in some cases, like considering their uh, world a nuisance, you know, to the adult world. So I think that's so fascinating, just, you know, treating them almost like humans, right? Right. Um, and yeah. humanizing their experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds kind of obvious. Like, yeah, of course we want to treat them as humans, but having been in, uh, you know, decades of dialogue around education and in educational spaces, it's a lot harder than you actually think because there's all these views we've been given about who children are and what they are and what their purpose is that are not always, they they get in the way of actually just viewing, okay, who is this person in front of me right now? Um, how are they unique and what is it that they need and have to offer and how are they making sense of the world that we live in? And they make children make sense of this world in really unique and remarkable ways because of the particular place they are, because they're so new to life and new to experience. They're often mirrors for us back, sort of showing us who we are in the ways that they think and express and talk about the world. Nicole, and do you have an example of that, uh, you know, based on some of the, the work that you've done over the last couple decades? Oh my gosh, I have a million examples. Let's see, what would be a great one? This is the one that's coming to mind right now. It's, you know, that thing when it's like hard, when you have so many examples of something, you're like, oh no, which one is going to come? So this is what comes right now. Uh, there was a discussion. Well, one thing I'll just say is the school I'm at, we have something called reflection meeting, which is a meeting that we have every single day with children based on a question or a problem that comes up from the day's work. And it's not a time, it's not a problem or a question we're trying to solve for a right answer. It's uh, it's just a chance for the community to get together and think together and hear one another's perspectives. And so every single day you're hearing children's reflections on what they think the world is. And these can be really simple things like, you know, for example, like how do you get a block building to stay up. That might be a question we'd have with like a two or three-year-old, but they can get really, really complex. Like I've had with five-year-olds sort of questions on, well, what is, what is a self and where does it come from? And how do we know what it is? So really amazing philosophical ones. And one that comes just to mind is um, a conversation we were having around gender and uh, 
girls clothes versus boys clothes and girls colors versus boy colors and asking the children like, where, where did this come from? Why do we, why do we think this? And them trying to make sense of it. And I just remember this little girl saying, it's not that we all like those colors. It's just that the companies only make colors for us like that. And this was a five-year-old who just <laughs> could see how she was being gendered and see that marketing was being given to her in a particular way and um, able to deconstruct that. So there's this way that they're so fresh with their experience of life that they can kind of call out, call out what we're adult, what us adults are doing. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I could I could listen to these examples all day, Nicole. So if you have another one, <laughs> I just think it's so fascinating, just that fresh perspective and point of view that I think a lot of us don't have access to. And you know, I'm curious like around what time or what age you see most children lose that kind of wider perspective or that connection to themselves and kind of become a little bit more socialized. I think it probably happens a little bit after the time that I'm generally working with children. And it's definitely happening because of structures of education, because you, you know, because most schools don't have a time of the day where you're really sitting around questioning, hey, what does this work? What does this happen? Um, so I don't think that it is inherently lost in children, but I do know there's some research. I wish I knew who it was by. I just remember hearing about it. But there's this thing. Um, there's this thing called divergent thinking uh, and divergent problem solving. And what that is, is it's like you give, um, you give somebody a set of things like a brick, a paperclip and a bed sheet. And you ask them, what are all the possible things you could do with this? And so the, the point is to be good at this kind of problem solving is to become a, to come up with like as many things as you could do with a brick a, pay, a paper clip or a bed sheet, like how many different ways could you think to use those things? Um, and that's as opposed to what's called convergent problem solving, which is like a math problem. Like I'm trying to get to an answer. I'm whittling down from a sense of possibilities down to one. And they did research on divergent thinking, which is really linked with creativity and imagination and, you know, a lot of things we actually need in the workplace these days. And they found that uh, they tested children from kindergarten, I think maybe preschool uh, through kindergarten on. And basically from kindergarten, you start to see a lack in the ability of children to divergently think uh, each progressive school year as they go on. They have less and less capability to um, come up with all those interesting and creative options. So that that might be, you know, as you start that elementary school age and you're really um, focusing down on things that are wonderful, like reading and math and all those things, but they teach you sort of one way of thinking. And we, we don't, um, this isn't true of all school systems everywhere in the world, but it's generally not as balanced with some of these other ways of thinking that young children are quite good at. Mm, wow. Fascinating. So divergent thinking uh, is a practice I think we all should become better at, especially as we become adults. Um, so Nicole, I'm curious I think at one point we had a conversation about this, so I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, in terms of parenting styles, uh, I know that you have done some research uh, on kind of the different polarities of where people exist within, I think it's like neglectful on one end and then authoritative on the other. And I'm just curious, you know, what's your opinion on what is like a healthy parenting style? Because um, I think a lot of people are confused about this, right? And especially like 
the way that we grew up and, um, you know, curious, like what your research, if any, you have on this, on this topic. Yeah. Thanks for the question. And I'll just say, this isn't, this isn't my particular research per se, but it's just like being educated in early childhood and developmental psychology and, you know, being in the field for a long time. Um, but one thing I want to say is I'm aware your listeners are from all over the world. So parenting practices and parenting styles are deeply cultural and um, they are like in some way the foundation of how people see, I think this is unconscious, but it's foundational to how we see like what we think is good parenting is often uh, because it creates the kind of person we think we want to see, which is uh, deeply culturally based. So all of what I'm going to say with a big wide grain of cultural salt. Um, but I think what you're talking about is this idea that there's a range in parenting of how you deal with power. And on one end is called permissive parenting. And that's parent, that's the parent who, um, sort of doesn't want to say no, allows for everything, uh, and is like, let the child do whatever they want to do. And on the other side of that, uh, range is the authoritarian parent. And that's the do what I say, because I say so with no reason why. And kind of my rules are the rules. They're the rules because I'm the adult and there's no, there's no discussion about that. And basically in the middle between that is what, uh, what is called authoritarian and authoritarian is like, Hey, we wake up today. We have three options on the table. We can go to the beach. We can go to the park or we can go visit your friend. And the child says, no, I want to go to the museum. Uh, the museums, we can't go to the museum today because it's not open. Da, 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 da. So we're going to go back to those choices. So if their authoritarian still has limits, it still has boundaries. The adult is very much uh, shaping parts of the world. But what's different is there's always, you're always giving a reason why. Here's why the limit exists. Here are why your choices exist. I'm not allowing this to happen. And I'm not allowing this to happen for X, Y, and Z reason. And what that does is, um, first of all, children need, desperately need boundaries. We, uh, it's very well documented in research that permissive parenting is the, is the most damaging long-term because of, I think you, you said, because it's neglectful. Um, and that children, like they know that they can't take care of themselves and that they're not in control of the world. Um, and so they need to feel that there are guidelines and boundaries hugging them. There was a great um, piece of research done out of UCLA where they told a group of children that they could, um, there was a big field and a play, play structure and they could play uh, anywhere within this line around the play structure. And the children played and they were really happy and you know they'd, they'd run out, out over the line and you know someone would say, hey, come back and they'd come back because children test boundaries. That's what they're doing to make sure, trying to see if that edge is there. Uh, and then um, they played freely and happily. And then they told uh, another group of children they could play anywhere. And what they saw was all the children sort of huddling in the center and actually not willing to be as daring and free in their play because the, the boundarylessness is scary. So that's on one end. And then on the authoritarian end, if you're only giving boundaries, but there's no reason why you give those boundaries, uh, that doesn't develop doesn't develop inside a child why they should or shouldn't do things like we're always as educators trying to give children as much information about the decisions that we're making or the reasons or the things that we see because we want them when they're not in our 
sites when they're out in the world on their own to be able to make decisions based on good data, good, um, you know, reasoning. And so the boundaries come then with a lot of explanation um, and a lot of um, thinking, giving your thinking behind why uh, one might do something or one might not do something. Um, So fascinating. So I'm also curious if you and we can skip this if if you don't know, but I'm curious about things like helicopter parenting or over-involvement or kind of smothering parenting. Because, you know, I've just sort of anecdotally witnessed that there's a lot of um, different types of parenting styles, but, you know, that one has come up quite a bit in culture today. So I'm just curious, you know, what has, what is, what does that do to children? I'm, yeah, there's probably like research out there about exactly what that does. And I'm not going to speak from that because I haven't read it or I don't know it, but I can just speak from 20 years of seeing uh, parenting and parenting styles kind of come and go and um, as an, as an educator. And um, like, first of all, I just want to say, like, I have a lot of compassion for the, the helicopter parent because I think where it it comes from a few different places. One, it comes from just like a sense of overwhelm with the world. Like it's an overwhelming world right now. And I think bearing a child into the world as it is, is, um, can be intense. And, uh, and so sometimes helicopter parenting comes from this, um, like it comes from an inability or a, or a difficulty, not inability, but a difficulty to grieve the, pain that it means to bear a child in the world like usually when children are being born they're being born with all of the hopes and wishes for the kind of world a parent wants to see like I'm bearing this child in hopes that I can raise them and and in some small way create yeah the world I want to live in but what's true is that children um, are not just being raised by parents Uh, they children just like this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, that children are are just equally as human as any other age. Children are accepting and rejecting and being influenced by the entire world. And, you know, beyond the baby stage, beyond toddler stage, as children start to emerge out into the world, there can be this grief because the world you don't want to make is now influencing the child you brought into the world in order to make the world a better place. And so I think the helicoptering comes from how do I actually bear my own child's suffering and my suffering as a result of that? And I think it's quite a big task, actually, that doesn't get a lot of, we don't talk about like the, you know, when you birth a child, you birth a birth, but you also birth a death and you birth heartbreaks and you birth failures and you birth rejection and you birth all of that um, experience into the world. So that partly just, I just really want to speak to the compassion to the helicopter parent, but with that, going back to kind of what you asked, what that does to children is, I mean, honestly, it does many different things because each child is going to react and respond to that very differently, but it does, um, I think it does like rob children of some sense of agency in the world if they're will being enacted. It also makes, um, I think it makes it hard for children to deal with failure as they go on, because as things are being structured around them and things are being taken care of and they're not being allowed to fail, then, you know, eventually a parent 
does have to kind of, a child's life is going to grow into the world without them. And so then it becomes a failure and what to do with that becomes really hard and really heartbreaking. It's not something that there's a lot of practice around uh, when one is younger. Um, and I'm sure there are many more implications to it all, but that's, that's what's coming to mind right now. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, this idea of like allowing our children to fail. Cause I think, um, you know, the overprotective piece of it for me has, has felt like, you know, just unrealistic in terms of the grand scheme of life, you know, which is filled with so many ups and downs and conflict. And so, um, yeah. And I imagine that the pandemic, uh, has also impacted parenting. And I'm just curious, you know, what's been your observation of how the pandemic has played out with, with parenting and also how it's, how it's affected children? I mean, funnily enough, I can speak much more to how it's um, affected children because one of the ways it's affected schools is that we've not been allowed to have parents in our space as much. We've had to, the first time at the school that I'm at, we drop children off at the door. That would never happen. Parents have always been integral and in, in the day and in like in the school throughout the entire school day. So I feel like I have, uh, just as an educator, I feel more disconnected from the reality that parents are facing right now. Um, but I mean, it's one thing is clear as parents are completely overwhelmed. <laughs> we already kind of, you know, as a society have gone towards nuclear family and less community, like lived in community support for children raising that ex has existed, at least here in the States that it has existed. And that's, you know, the pandemic has only exacerbated the problems of like overwhelming, overwhelming responsibility of, um, being a nuclear parent. And I, I mean, and the way it's affected children, like it's been hard. It's very, it's been very hard on children. I, this has been true in the school that I've worked at and true that educators everywhere. Like I, I, you know, I hate to add griefs onto any narrative of the pandemic, but children are in rough shape. <laughs> children who are even like two and a half, three-year-olds who are coming to us are just coming to us with a lot more, um, needs and emotional challenges and um like difficult behavior stuff um and they've had they just had no time to socialize with each other no time in group settings they have almost no skills with um yeah relating to one another and um just being in community i mean even just like children aren't even being brought to the grocery store, haven't been. Uh, and so even just like the level of sound that say being in a classroom with like 20 other children, like they're, they're even just more sensory um, and sound overloaded than they've been before. And I've heard from other teachers uh, um, in elementary school, children coming in who, who haven't, who spent like, you know, a few years like watching television and don't even in kindergarten have well enough developed vocabularies, let alone like any skills to be able to come in and read. So we're seeing quite like, um, quite a lot of suffering in the world of children as a result of the pandemic. And as a result, teachers are working exceedingly hard right now. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, my heart goes out to all the parents, um, you know, who had to, I guess, deal with all the restrictions, you know, with children Yeah, and um, I can't say I've had that experience myself, so I, I've just heard it anecdotally. Uh, so, Nicole, what about what happens to schools and our perspective on what education is when we shift the question from what makes a good education education 
to what do young people need to learn li- to live a fulfilled human life? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite questions about questions, which is, um, yeah, it's a question I don't see being asked enough in educational spaces, which is we have this whole system of education that really was built to meet the needs of industrialism and educating a workforce in a particular way. And we're really completely out. Like it it wasn't, our education system was never, the question has never that I know of really been asked on a systemic level of like, what does it mean to be a human being? And what do we need to give in order to like foster a really well-lived and rich life? That's never really been asked in a, it's been asked at certain schools and by certain thinkers for sure. And theoretically, but in terms of a big system, that's never really been asked, but let's just take a minute and imagine what that would mean. Like what classes would we have? What experiences would we have? Like what, first of all, it would ask us to define as a culture, what is a well-lived human life, which would be amazing to collectively answer that question. Like what values do we put at the forefront? Is it it a well-lived human life about relationships and loving one another? Is it about following one's deeply held passions and manifesting those in the world? Is it about caring for uh, communities and ecosystems and creating um, generations of prosperity for people to come so first of all it begs the question what what is a what is a um what is the well human what is a well-lived human life and then say a culture got to ask that question and came up with something that people felt really good about can just i don't know if you feel it i just feel like my whole body lights up at the thought of designing an education system around whatever that is say it is about really making sure people know how to be in deep relationship with each other and the things that they love and the environment that they live in. I mean, it's hard to even imagine uh, what could be created from that point of view. Uh, But then what usually happens in educational reform is we say, okay, well, we have this system and how can we make it a little bit better? Or how can we make sure that this population of people is achieving at this test score or that they're moving on to higher education? We often look to reform education from inside the structures we've created without taking one step back further and saying, well, what education really is, is it's a a culture creator. It's a creator of a society for good or for ill. And so how do we really define what it is to be good and how do we move in that direction? I think you know, we'd probably, right now we're looking at teacher shortages in in almost every area of education. And I think people, if we were asking those questions, we'd see people flocking to the educators because there's really nothing more inspiring than, than trying to create the foundation for the world you want to see. But I'm just sort of curious, you know, in terms of this question of living a good life and then this construct that we're in, which is preparing children to essentially work in this like industrialized concept of nine to five, you know, are we failing our children by, by setting them up 
in, in a, you know, for a construct that may not even exist by the time that they become adults. I, I just imagine that the world is changing so much. Um, and is our education system just equipping our, our, our children for a workforce that might even be outdated? Um, yes. And, and I'm not the only one saying that. I mean, educators have been beating on that drum for a long time now. And I, I think it's, you know, I just saw an article yesterday about how depression rates in teens is just skyrocketing. And part of that's the pandemic and stuff. But um, it's also because I think teenagers aren't dumb. They see like, what am I doing? And how is this going to impact? I'm living in a climate crisis. I'm living in, you know, um, political and social upheaval. Like, how is what I'm doing now preparing me or even engaging me in those questions? So it's, I think, we have been failing, we are failing, and children know we're failing. And there's a really powerful um, book written by an educator, Herbert Cole, called I Won't Learn From You and Other Creative Maladjustments. And it was really influential to me as an educator, which is to look at like when we talk about behavioral issues or certain populations not succeeding, to see that as, oh, that's actually children rebelling against a system they don't believe in. And children won't necessarily be as articulate uh, to say that they won't know exactly what they're doing, but often misbehavior, um, failure to thrive in educational systems like that gets put on children. But it's a really powerful flip to see, no, that's actually children saying, hey, what you're doing, how you're educating me doesn't make sense of the world that I live in. And it doesn't make sense. And it's not giving me what I need to thrive now. Um, and may maybe perhaps also in the future, but yeah, we, I mean, but it's also, we're in a tough situation as in education because what will be the future? We don't, we don't really know. So how, looking at like, I mean, that's another interesting thing. Like how do, how to create a population that's ready for an uncertain future um, would really be an interesting way to sit down and structure an education right like <laughs> it's sort of daunting and negative but it actually could be really cool like oh, how do we create resiliency and flexibility and like what are the dispositions we need and yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah so I guess we'll find out uh so Nicole you wrote I, I guess you are the lead writer for Patagonia's award-nominated book, Family Business, Innovative On-Site Child Care. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the book and maybe some of the highlights? Yeah, I can. Um, it was such a joy to work on that project. Um, speaking of people who are thinking about what it could mean to think about education differently, they're an incredible company for... Um, supporting families and parents. Um, so they, at their corporate headquarters, they have a uh, uh, school that's um, infant care all the way through elementary, after school, elementary school pickup. And uh, they developed the school. There's a lot of corporations that might have like in-house preschools, but those are usually run by big corporate preschool uh, kind of conglomerations, but they really developed the school out of the ethos of their company. And they do an enormous amount to support mothers. Uh, so if you are a nursing mother and you work and you need to go on a business trip, they will pay for your spouse to go with you to take care of the baby. And if your spouse can't go or you don't have a spouse, they will pay an educator from the school to go with you on the trip so that you can keep nursing your child. Um, and they 
I think they subsidize all of their, um, all of their, uh, retail employees, childcare as well. So they're just a company that's taken a stand in, um, supporting families and supporting children and supporting particularly mothers. And actually two of the women uh, that I worked with on the project, um, there were three generations of women in the company. So there was uh, one woman who had had a baby and her daughter had been raised in that school. And then her daughter was working for the company and her daughter was actually in the preschool. So three generations of women on site right there, able to employees can pop in at the school and be part of it. And so family life and business life really was blended in this beautiful way. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. It's so fascinating how I've just witnessed the lack of support for child services um, across the board in the business world, I'm just sort of appalled. Um, you know how how little uh, kind of energy we give this topic when I think everyone who is a mom, I think who wants to you know continue their career, has a very difficult time figuring out childcare. I mean, just listening to all the friends of mine who have to pay a lot of money for childcare services just to stay at their job is just appalling to me. And in many ways makes me feel like our country and our leadership and our government has sort of failed us. Yeah. Failed, failed women. And interestingly enough, Yasmin, there's a, there's a connection between the helicopter parent and, and this that I'll make for you, which is um, I, I spent just a little bit of time in Sweden studying, looking at their, systems there and they have, um, you get a year's worth of maternity leave and then, uh, free education from one years of age all the way up to university. And if you look at the history of that and, and the culture around that is they don't see raising children as only the family's responsibility. They see it as the state's responsibility. They see it as the wider community's responsibility. And, um, in the U S we, it is our government and it is our systems, but we also culturally put a lot of emphasis on the parent's role in raising children, um, which is where the helicopter parent comes in, this kind of overestimation of a parent's important in a child's life, which a parent is very important in a child's life, but so is their grandparents, so is the school they go to, so is the friends they have, so is the media they watch, like all of this is coming in to influence the child. And so we don't see the kind of, um, it's, we don't have a movement demanding it because we don't have a concept that it is the role of the wider culture to help raise the child. Um, and so then you, you get helicopter parenting out of this overestimation of a parent's role in a child's life. Like if you're the only thing that matters um, to that child's life, you're going to like try to control everything because you want it to be great. Right? Mm, uh, yeah. But we need to also as a population recognize and really see how a child is interconnected to so many different uh, parts of the culture and demand more care and respect and um, support for that child's life from beyond our family units. You know, it's it's fascinating because I I have heard that nuclear parenting in general just does not work, right? You know, for, for so much of the development of the child. And so I'm just curious, like, why are people still doing it? Why are they still like sequestering themselves away from the community and, and doing it if it doesn't work? Or is it just there, is there like a lack of exposure of this type of knowledge in society? You know, systems are big. They're hard to break out of. Like, it's not like even our architecture, like the the houses you can get in LA and afford and 
you know, we're all working hard. <laughs> it takes effort to do something outside of the system that's been offered to you. And so, especially parents, they're just trying to like, you know, get everything done in a day, like to be radical and rethink it. There are people definitely doing it, but it takes, it takes effort and, and collective, collective action. Right. Right. So Nicole, I want to talk about the role of beauty in education. Um, I almost want to say the role of beauty and also the role of the sacred mm. uh, in, in education. What does that mean to you? Yeah. It makes me just so happy you asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, w- I would say like, you know, I am a, like a, a devotee of beauty and John O'Donohue, uh, the, the Irish thinker has a great distinction between glamour and beauty that we get confused about beauty and glamour. So I just want to say that to frame that when I'm speaking about beauty, I'm talking about physical beauty and the environment and things like that. But I'm also talking about like just beauty as a, as a like movement in the world. And so, I mean, first of all, I'll speak to the environment piece, which is, um, you know, you go into most public schools in this country and they're terribly ugly. They look like prisons and the, like the architecture, the materials, what we offer in a space, it communicates value and the value that we have for something like you don't go into, I don't know, like if we value something in this culture, it's in a beautiful building, it has plants around, it's in a garden. And so just 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 on a baseline level, beauty, like as, as a communicating value. So here we are, we're saying, children, you're required. This is what you're going to do with this, with this precious part of your life, this, this part where you're emerging into the world, and we're going to put you in abysmally ugly spaces. Just what that communicates to, um, to children and about their worth and about uh, how, how we view them and how we see them is one thing. So that's one level. The other, the next level is like, just as organisms, as beings, we are drawn to beauty. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, I look out my window and I see a beautiful flower. I want to go and smell it. I want to move towards it. So we're asking children to learn the things that we think are valuable and important um, for them to know. Like, we should really be concerned with offering it with beauty because if when we make things beautiful, like, there's, it's effortless to learn. Learning and beauty go together. Like I don't have to work hard to uh, learn an idea that I think is beautiful. You know, if I, if I'm reading a book and it's an idea that I just think is stunning, it's like, it doesn't take any effort. I just read it. I just gobble it up. I just want to have it as part of my life experience. Um, And so beauty is just like, just as like a pedagogy, I'll bring my pedagogy word back, just as a tool of teaching, beauty is a no-brainer. You want children to, oh, you want children to move in a direction, make it beautiful. And then the third level of beauty um, that I would speak to is that uh, we don't, like, we, education is in part to create, like, like let let's go back to that idea I critiqued a little about about children are our future right they're going to be our future problem solving solvers they're inheriting systems that need help like listen to the difference between this question like how do I solve how do we solve the climate crisis 
like when I hear that question, I'm like, oh God, I don't know. I'm overwhelmed. Like, I have no idea. That's too big of a problem for me. But then what do I say? What if I said, what's the most beautiful way we could solve the climate crisis? Mm. Right? Resonates differently, right? (laughs) I love that. Right. And so what if we're asking children, what's the most beautiful way you could do X, Y, and Z? Like, that just that would revolutionize the world. It would be a completely if we all if we made it our duty to solve problems, to build things, to create things, to think in ways that was the most beautiful way we could possibly think of. Like, wow, what would happen? It would be astonishing. So integrating beauty at all of these levels is like, I mean, it does so much for children and so much like yeah just just so much and and I do think I think I forget who said this I wish I remembered in this moment but I've heard the idea that the sacred and beauty are synonymous that really um one definition of what is sacred is it's something sort of beautiful with dimensions beyond what we could even imagine like it's we see a beauty and then it's endlessly beauty it has beauty plus dimensionality and depth and um that i mean i i i want that i want that school <laughs> i think you know, I, i'd want to send my children to that school and i'd want everyone to be able to be in a school that aim, that aims for that <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a profound uh concept i mean the yeah just looking back on my own experience of education um i definitely felt a sense of antiquity going into schools even if they were quote unquote modern. Um, yeah. And it, so it did feel like a prison in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, this is a, just a profound idea of, of, you know, creating our environment or building our environment to look beautiful um, and what that means to children. Yeah. Oh, I do want to share one other story around it. Yeah. Oh, please, yeah. I went, uh, my, did my undergraduate at Scripps college, which is a women's college, um, outside of LA. And we joke that they had more gardener to student ratio than any college in the country. Cause there was like roses and orange trees and hidden gardens. And it was like, there was like, you know, the dorms were like had inlaid tiled sinks from the 1920s. It was so beautiful. It was so <laughs> beautiful. It was like, I kind of made fun of it back then, but then I went on and became an educator who, who really speaks for the role of beauty in education. And w- uh, in my own personal life story, my father had um, my senior year, right when I was transitioning to college, my father committed suicide. And so I went to undergraduate in like a deep state of grief and um, that I didn't even fully understand at the time. And years later, I went back to Scripps College and I sat, I was just sitting there like amongst the fountains and water lilies and beauty. And I was like, I I started to cry because I realized that the beauty of that place had healed me, had been part of my healing. And it was created by Ellen Browning Scripps. It's a women's college. And it was uh, created in the 1920s for women. And she made it that intentionally beautiful because she wanted to communicate the value of women's intellectual endeavors and support it. And I realized it had worked, that, that she had this vision in the 1920s that I had come in really pretty in deep, deep grieving 
and uncertainty about my life and had been supported by just the physical beauty. And as I said, like beauty extends into the ideas, the concepts, the problem solving, all that, but the physical beauty itself, I would, I would say was something that helped me survive a difficult part of life. Mm, Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Nicole, thank you for sharing that story. And yeah, I, I think, you know, it's so true for a lot of people who, um, even in the workforce, right? Like our offices are very similar to the ways even schools look or a little bit more even clinical or um, boxy. Uh, and I and I think that does something to our imagination and our creativity um, just in general, right? And I think Pixar, was it Ed Catmull who wrote about this, how um, he would design his offices so that it would invite creativity in. And I think that's such an important thing that a lot of people are not mindful of how spaces actually impact us so profoundly. And I'm so happy that Scripps College was able to do that for you. Um, I definitely want to check out the campus now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Nicole, I want to talk a little bit about the child's spiritual life and what does it mean to care for children's spiritual lives to you? Yes, 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 yes. Hmm. Uh, well, first of all, I just love the question because, like, it's just, um, I, yeah, it's just not one I hear asked a lot. Uh, someone who did, uh, who I love, who did think about it a lot was actually Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He, I, don't, I don't know if any of your listeners <laughs> know, but he was actually a minister and considered his TV, uh, his television program, Taking Care of Children's Spiritual Lives. And he did radical things on that TV show, really helping children understand complex um, things that were going on in the world. And, but I think, um, I mean, what's really interesting is I, I work from like mostly from two-year-olds to six-year-olds. And I would say what it means to care for the spiritual life of a two-year-old is even really different than what it means to care for the spiritual life of a five-year-old. So one of the fascinating things about young children is it, I think it's evolving, uh, it, it, along, and, uh, and I, maybe I'll speak just to my own experience of how that evolves. Um, so a two-year-old and two-and-a-half-year-old, it's like there's such a sense of um, two, threes, like of um, like when you watch them. Okay, well, first of all, I would say really understanding the depth and value of children's play is caring for their spiritual life. Like that, that children have this amazing whole realm that they exist in, in imaginative play that it's when we were talking about like what's unique to childhood, like that's unique, like never again in a human life will we be able to like go and take some pots and pans and pretend to make dinner and have it become an entire world. Like that we are literally incapable. It's so boring to us as adults or we feel rich. I mean, we do play. I'm not saying we don't play, but though, but the depth and the fullness of children's imaginative life is like, it's astonishing and it's um, inspiring. And it has all of these, they're working out all of these interesting complexities. And so when, you know, those very young ages, it's like just the sense of um, like love and care and family life and, um, just building connections to other people and what does that mean and what do relationships mean and what is my autonomy and what is my 
how am I autonomous and how am I connected? Like caring for that whole realm um, is kind of what happens in that. And then, and then you get four-year-olds and four-year-olds, they're like kind of like the best and the worst all at once. And they, um, they like, they're, 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 they're sort of, they start to notice that the world is like a little bit dangerous and a little bit scary. And so they, they often get very obsessed with good and bad and like bad guys and good guys. And they're, they'll play out a lot of, you know, anything from superhero games to naughty kittens who are not doing what they're supposed to do. And so caring for them is really like, they have this, they're almost little budding social justice warriors. Like they want to, they want to take care of the good and, and really make sure the bad is away, but, but that can get simplified. So caring for what is it, what does it like, what does good and bad mean? How do we, how does power work? Like, how can we uh, gain perspective, uh, you know, different kinds of perspectives? And then five-year-olds, five-year-olds are my favorite human beings. That's my favorite age. I'm sorry, but we, we go downhill from five-year-olds. Five-year-olds really start to ask questions about God, about self, about the world. And so really um, taking care to know what their questions are and to be open-ended with those questions and to really wonder and imagine to write stories, to write poetry, to um, conduct thought experiments, to uh, go rigorously into, because while it does some kind of sense of transcendence um, seems to open up around five often, it's often really different depending on the child, their own flavor and uniqueness of how they're trying to make sense of that is really specific. So tuning into who that child is and and asking questions that can continue to open that sense of wonder and awe and transcendence in the direction that they want to go. Wow. So, and what about, I have to ask because so many of my, my friends have complained about this, but the terrible twos, oh. what happens at the age of two? Uh, it's that thing of autonomy and interdependence and autonomy. Like they just, it's the, I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes on, but it's like, I kind of want to do things on my own, but I kind of want your help. Apparently, there's also like stuff with um, learning language that at that time, there's something in the brain that uh, the capacity to learn language as well as they can means a decrease in their emotional regulation. So you just have a lot of like tantrums at two, you have a lot of like seemingly unreasonable, like what seems like unreasonable um, uh, responses to things or requests that seem like, why do we have to put all the broccoli on the left side of the plate? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand, you know, um, <laughs> but I actually love, I love, I love two-year-olds because uh, I, I think they're, I think it, I think what happens really in terrible twos is, is often for parents because it's like, especially their first one, because all of a sudden they had a baby and then they have a person who has opinions and it's the time in the parent and child where you're negotiating those opinions and they're very uh hard opinions for adults to understand because they don't they're not logical and we like we like things to be logical and so they seem illogical to us um but if you are a parent who's in that time like just really slowing down to understand the strange logic of what might be going on or what need might be able to what need is trying to be met and then just shifting your behavior based on based on your theories about what they're trying to get out of that behavior can really help in that, in that phase. <laughs> oh. 
Fascinating. Oh, I'm so happy that we've had this conversation. I think a lot of people are going to find it extremely supportive on their parenting journey. Is there anything that you would want to tell parents that are going through really difficult times right now, or even teachers who are going through difficult times? And in some cases, it might be the same person. I've heard of a lot of people now um, parenting their own or teaching their own child. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious, do you have any kind of words of wisdom or advice to give them moving forward? Yeah. Well, just first of all, um, you know, the world, everything that we've, we've already touched on a lot, Yasmin, around like the world, this country, the world just not being set up well to support uh, family life. And so keeping that in mind that uh, sometimes I, it can feel so personal, like, I know like if I, if some, if I'm in the classroom and it's not going very well with a child like it feels so the sense of failure can be so intense like oh god I'm failing this budding human being who's reliant on me to like make sense of the world and I'm doing a terrible job and like that just just to validate the heartbreak of that which is teachers experience it parents experience it and um so that that first but also to say, like, if you're in, a, in difficult moments with children, when I was a new teacher, I really, you know, didn't, I didn't want to, like, that was so terrifying. And I think, because uh, it's so um, unpredictable, children are so, that's another thing they offer us is unpredictable, uh, unpredictability. But that as I've matured into being an educator, like, the the times that were difficult with children or the children that I struggled to know and to connect with and to serve, like always made me grow. They always made me better. And they made the classroom richer and like staying really present with the difficulty, with whatever's happening, um, had this, like, there's this, children actually feel quite bonded and connected to the people who are willing to go through those difficult moments with them. And so not only did uh, challenges and difficulties really make the classroom life richer and make me richer as a, as, as a teacher, but it also was like, I was often the closest with children who I was able to hang with the moments of difficulty with and stay with them and stay exploring and stay curious and stay uh, in relationship, we often have had the closest, closest bonds over time. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. And Nicole, why do you think this subject is so important? Why did you dedicate so much of your life to children's education? Mm. I mean, to be honest, like, it's just really fun. as part of my, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> like my days are awesome. Nobody I know at work has as much fun. Like the other day I, threw a birthday party for a plant and wrote a blog about issues of, you know, bias and parenting and then watched video of children playing an interesting game. Like I just think children. So, so in part I've stayed in it because it's been one of the most fascinating possible things I could do with my life. But that, that selfish, that's my selfish reason, but maybe the more altruistic reason would be it just like you, we are we, every generation, we have the opportunity to imagine the world anew. Every school has the opportunity to, to make, to make, to respond and to make something different of, um, 
than what came before. It's this edge of blossoming creativity that's um, that's a, that's available, and it's alive, and it's beautiful, and it's difficult and inspiring. Mm. Wow, wow. Uh, so Nicole, what has surprised you the most on this journey? You know, looking at um, all the work that you've done with children, is there anything that kind of, you know, has surprised you? I, uh, I think the thing that I'm continually surprised at, and that I'm continually surprised that I'm even surprised is just how, uh, how deep and brilliant children are. So I'm, um, as you mentioned, there's this book of poetry that I had the honor to edit. And uh, there's a poem in it where this, this boy Jasper says, if I think something in my mind, then that thing is in my mind. And he goes on to talk about yellow yellow pencils in my mind, yellow pencils flying in trees looking for meat. And I'm not, I'm not giving the poem exactly, but at the end he says, in my mind, it's a meat poem. And that just blows my mind. Here is a five-year-old <laughs> talking about the fact that uh, just thinking something creates it in consciousness. And that if there's anything we've lost as a culture, it's how to really, like learning to listen to children takes more than it does to learn to listen to adults. They speak more poetically. They speak more um, from their direct sensory experience. But when you learn to listen, it's astonishing. It's just, they have such fresh and beautiful and wonderful perspectives that they surprise me every day. And I, and I, I, I think I'm going to get to the end of being surprised, but there's never an end to the surprise with which, what the, how they offer the world back. Mm, wow. Oh, that's so beautiful, Nicole. It makes me also just so excited about spending more time with children, um, which I think a lot of us as adults don't get the opportunity to do unless we have our own children. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm so moved and touched by your work. For those of you who want to get in touch with Nicole, please reach out to Gateways to Awakening and we can give you her contact information. Thank you so much for your time, Nicole, and for our audience. Thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about what people misunderstand the most about children with Nicole Marie, and you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.